a few things as we get started today. For those of you interested in games, education, and using games for education, I wanted to let you know that Jason Gadeski recently released the rules for The Fifth World as a PDF download. If you're interested in starting your own local game, which you should if you're a tabletop gamer, or anyone who would like to have an animist experience while telling a generative story, you'll find that download by scrolling to the bottom of the page at thefifthworld.com RPG. I've also included a link directly to the PDF and that page in the show notes. As mentioned in the recent end-of-year episode, 2018 is my Year of the Possibility Handbook. On January 2nd, I completed the first edit, and am now using that manuscript and my notes to create the next draft. If you'd like to see updates from the process, look for Permaculture Podcast on Instagram. There I'm posting pictures from the manuscript and my notes as I roll along. You can also join in this project and learn more of the lessons from Ethan Hughes and the Possibility Alliance on how to become an agent of change by going to thepermaculturepodcast.com book. Finally, if you enjoy this podcast, have you made a one-time donation or become a Patreon member? I ask because for all the episodes released so far, totaling millions of downloads and listens, this show has been supported by under 500 people in the last six years, an average of less than one per episode. Will you take today to make a difference for permaculture? Make a one-time donation online by going to paypal.me slash permaculturepodcast. If you prefer to send something in the mail, that address is the Permaculture Podcast, P.O. Box 16, Dauphin, Pennsylvania, 17018. Or, if you prefer, you can become an ongoing Patreon supporter and receive unique rewards for your monthly contribution. Find out more and sign up today by going to patreon.com slash permaculturepodcast. How did animals and people influence the landscape for hundreds of thousands and even millions of years before the rise of civilization? That question provides the framework for Wilson Alvarez and his current work, The Reintegration Project which examines the prehistoric ecosystem engineers of the eastern United States as a way to understand how permaculture practitioners and rewilders can use biomimicry to replicate those influences and restore the landscape. To dig into this question and the solutions he's found, Wilson shares his thoughts on harmonic disturbance, functional extinction, taxon versus mechanical substitution as two different approaches to land management for conservation and rewilding, and how to bolster the ecosystem by planning for correct disturbances of the correct size at the correct time. Enjoy this discussion with Wilson, and I'll join you again afterward. And have you ever heard the term niche construction, that biological idea that we create the ecosystem around us, but then the ecosystem creates us, you know, genetically. So it's like this give and take between us and the landscape, the landscape and us, the more we change the landscape, the more it changes us genetically, the more it changes us genetically, the more we change the landscape. The beaver is a perfect example of that. It's like this perfect give and take. And I think humans are another perfect example of that, where you can see niche construction, but like, what does that say about a world where everything is paved and everything is poisoned? You know, what does that do to us if we're creating these niches for ourselves? What type of future human are we looking at? With the project that I'm doing now, I'm like, 
this is a, you know, me and Ben have been on your podcast. We've both, you know, sort of lived in that zone four of permaculture. Our work has always sort of uh, been there at the edge, right, on the zone four, the semi-wild spaces. And it's still there. I mean, my heart is, I think my heart will be there. I think I became who I am in, in these little patches of forest that we all have, not all of us anymore, but a lot of us have uh, have spent some time in where we, there wasn't, there, was, there weren't rules. There were, it wasn't a park. It was this sort of unstructured place where we, uh, where we were able to play with the, dig in the ground and move rocks and make dams. That's the place where I think the work of the future and the potential for change in the future is there because it's the places that are now don't have a role in our society right now. These are places that are waiting to be something else in the future because we've set it aside for right now. These are places along our roadside that we can't do anything with. So they're, they're mowed or they're poisoned or whatever. These are the places that I think have the highest potential the sort of potential energy and potential change factor, I think we're sitting on it. You know, just on the roadsides alone in North America, we have as many acres as we do in national forests, a national park system. So we have potentially as much as many acres of wildland just sitting there now being mowed and maintained in a very non-regenerative way just by flipping that construct and thing. Look at all this potential acreage for habitat, carbon sequestration, water filtration. All of a sudden, we don't even need to change a lot of the infrastructure that we already have, embrace the infrastructure that we have. And all of a sudden, we have this sort of, I think a lot of that is like just changing our our view of it, changes how we see it, then changes what we do with it, then it changes us, like niche construction or that type of thing. I have talked on your podcast a couple of times with Ben about how do you approach a wild space? What do you do when you're there? How do you not take civilization and the idea of designing and how do you not take that into a wild space? How do you become, how are you a permaculture? What does it look like to be zoned for semi-wild permaculturalist? Do you tread lightly and leave nothing but footprints? Do you design it and make it into a garden? I don't think any of those are the correct thing to do. I think there is a way. So what I've been doing in the last couple of years is I've been just studying what is missing. I see what's here. I see the plants. I see the animals that exist today. I even see a lot of the Native American or the Aboriginal ideas. So I've, I've gone back that far. I've gone back to thousands of years, how Natives use the landscape, how Natives manage the landscape. But there still has always been this lingering question. It's, okay, I see how he, when humans came, I see that. I see their adaptations to large-scale landscape management. And it's all very, very good. And it, it's a productive thing to look at and emulate. But what about when you go farther? What did the world look like before humans become the ecosystem engineers on a global scale? And then you start to look at a world that looks very, very different than the world that we know. And then you start to, to think about how we're restoring landscapes and how we're trying to regenerate these landscapes. We're regenerating these landscapes based off of models that are false or flawed. We're basing them off of models that are very human-centric. Even if we go back a thousand or two thousand years to this landscape here and say, yep, this is it. This is what should be in this forest a very human-centric forest. It's a very human-centric idea. And when I take people out into the forest now, I say, 
what do you see? And they say, oh, there's a tree here. Oh, look, there's a, there's a stream here. What do you not see? Because that is the most important thing. What you don't see is what the earth is sort of vying for. And I say, do you, do you know that there were two elephants that lived in Pennsylvania? Elephants? No. Yeah, there were two elephants. Now think about an animal that is 10,000 pounds to 13,000 pounds that can knock down trees at will, that could dig wells. These are animals that they lived in North America for at least 20 million years. And they spread across North America. I mean, besides Australia and Antarctica, the proboscideans, which are the, the family of elephants, they're not true elephants, they're elephant-like. They were what they considered the mega gardeners of the world. So if we start looking back and you go, okay, what does an elephant design system look like? So if they created a world in their image like we do, because they're the largest ecosystem engineers in the world, what would our forest look like? What would our forest look like if there were beavers at the, even the historical, not even in the before human settlement and before human predation, what would it look like if there were hundreds of millions of beavers in North America? Hydrologically, we're talking about a world that is so different, forests that are so different and broken up and wet, we can't even fathom that. So when you're thinking about restoring a creek, what are you restoring it to? You can't ignore the animals that have shaped the landscape for so long. So then what do you do now? What do you do in these places that we control? What do we do in these places where it would be, it's impossible to bring, there's no more, there's no more elephants that can live up north. It wouldn't be a very good idea to put beaver in suburbia, which would then flood most people's backyards and then create another sort of catastrophe. It wouldn't be ethical to take a wolf and put it in Lancaster County for all the reasons of why that is. But the ecosystem is crying out for their disturbance. The ecosystem never, we think of 10,000 years as a long scale. Ecological terms, it's a blip. The earth is still looking for these type of disturbance. It's still reeling from the loss of as much megafauna that were here. I mean, just 250 years ago, our forests look very different than they now. There were bison that lived in our forests and elk at levels, you know, very similar to our deer that we have now. You know, this is martens, wolves, wolverines, moose. These are things that we can't even fathom being in our, in, in our landscape. And yet they were just here a couple of hundred years ago. So when we design, we have to be like, okay, what are we designing for? And, and how can we create a system where, does it make any sense for humans to ignore what was here and what should still be here? And ecologically, the, the plants and the trees and the hydrology and the nutrient cycling, that's all still based on that type of sort of natural disturbance. And now we've, you know, we've changed that up. But can we somehow harness that? And that's what I've been doing for the last couple of years, trying to figure out how to create a toolkit based off of extinct or extant animals, what do they do mechanically on the ecosystem and how can that become a toolkit for us as designers to use? So then are you looking to recreate the kinds of disturbances and changes that those animals in particular, the megafauna, the impacts that they had upon our forests and landscapes? Or are you looking to do like some of the conservation rewilding where they're reintroducing 
large animals, either the direct species that were in an area or analogs for them. That was the idea, right? I think, you know, I come from a a rewilding background. I've been trying for many, many years, 15 years or 16 years now, to turn myself into a more wild human state. As much food as I can, hunting and gathering and learning ancient toolkits and how to make them and use tools. So that's the uh, one part of rewilding, the human form of rewilding. And then there's this conservation rewilding. It's like, okay, the earth is in dire need of large animals and small animals, but large animals in general that make these humongous impacts on ecosystems at landscape scale, landscape scale, which is really important to remember. We're talking about vast areas versus, uh, you know, when permaculture, we think about farm scale, we're talking about landscape scale. So what I've been trying to do is say, if the ecosystem is struggling because we, there is an overpopulation problem that is not easily fixed. We have a lot of human beings born every day. And that is something that is sort of the, I, I always think of it as the unspoken design aspect that no one wants to talk about. It's not a good thing to talk about. It's not a happy or nice thing to talk about because there's not much we can do about it. So we design around it and we try very hard to design around it. We try to design systems that make more calories per acre, produce less waste and you use less water. But there's still one problem here. There's too many humans and humans act like humans. Just like when there are too many deer on a landscape, all deer need the same browse. They need the same water. They need the same trails so they can devastate an area. There's too many rodents. It doesn't matter the size. It's just the quantity per, it, you can overstrip an area with high populations. This is what we're doing. Too many humans needing what humans need. Too many humans acting like humans. How can you fix that? So if you get humans to not act like humans on the landscape, so we have this idea of functional extinction, even though we have the deer, which is, you know, across Pennsylvania, the deer is our largest herbivore. Oh, oh, we have the elk. Yes, yes, we have the elk. But we have elk in two counties, about 5,000 individuals. That is what they call functional extinction. While they're not extinct, what they produce mechanically on the landscape with their disturbance is extinct. Yes, we have some beavers in Pennsylvania, but they're on such small numbers that the impact, the positive impact of the animal is now extinct. It's gone, but we can step in. You know, I've been thinking now for the last two years now that what makes us human is not that we created tools. I think, you know, they call us the tool makers. That is not distinctly human. I think what is distinctly human and why we made the tools in the first place, our gift is to mimic. We are what I consider the mimicking mammal. We're not the tool-making mammal. We can look at an animal, look at how they do something, look at the toolkit that they use, their teeth or their claws, and we can emulate that using another product. We can make sharp things out of rocks, and, and we can use fire just like nature does to harden things. So I don't think the tools making made us humans. I think it's the mimicking. And if you think about how quickly we moved across the landscape, we didn't have to grow hair. We didn't have to adapt to northern environments. We just took the adaptation off of someone else and put it on us. That didn't allow us to form these long equilibriums with landscapes that, for example, a a lion would have to left Africa, spread across and into North America, 
you have this long sort of adaptation process of growing thicker hair and the weaker dying and this evolution that's built, this niche construction. We bulldoze through that. And I think what we are looking at today in the sort of modern world is the consequences of bypassing sort of biological evolution. We move through that by being able to strip an animal of its fur and put it on. We didn't have to grow our own. Now I think we, we have enough information and enough ideas out there that we can say, okay, we're too many humans. I know that. I don't think anyone can disagree now. We're overpopulated beyond belief. We need a large group of people to go into these semi-wild places that have no value. And I say that in air quotes, no value. They have a lot of value. Any wild space has value. But on a cultural basis, there's not a large value put on it. We're not putting plaques up and things like that for roadsides. These are just not things that are done. So if we take these animals, these incredibly easy to study, very long-term studies of these things, and easy to mimic, that's why I don't choose an earthworm, which has a much more ecological value as an ecosystem engineer, but good luck trying to mimic an, an earthworm. But I choose four large ecosystem engineers. An ecosystem engineer is an organism that sort of drastically can change the habitat around it. The beaver is the example I think most people would would know. Their dam building has hundreds of different positive interactions with the ecosystem. I do the, the wolf, which controls herbivore populations. I do the elephant, which in, even if we're, I know we're talking about temperate forests, but the, the elephant species or elephant-like creatures were the gardeners way before we were, for millions of years beforehand. And the ecosystem that we came into and that we ended up having to emulate and get back were these large savanna areas that we kept open with fire, our tool. We had to do that because the elephants were gone and they were, they, you can consider an elephant the large, a deforester. They take down trees. That's their gift. And then wild humans, because humans are these incredible engineers when you think about of not as this apex species, but as a mammal. What makes us unique? Why are we interesting? Not because of our culture or our art. I don't think that makes us as interesting as some creatures. I think, what do we do that's different than any other creature? Instead of moving seeds around, we move plants around. We control fire. We can kill apex predators. Name another one that can do that. These are these really interesting things that make the human animal an interesting subject to study and mimic. Not us as dominators, but us as literal mammals. It kind of takes that story of civilization and the destruction caused by humanity and then flips this around and lets us look at where we come from and the impacts that we had for hundreds of thousands of years from like the pre-modern humans through to, you know, humanity today, that idea, it reminds me of, you know, of tending the wild, the way that we kind of filled these niches as other animals went extinct by human hand or otherwise, that we learned from them and we told the stories that then we could fill in those places. Absolutely. And, you know, I read the, the question that was given about, should we look at ethnographic uh, land management? Should we look at traditional ecological knowledge as a toolkit for moving forward in how we interact with wild spaces? Absolutely. 
But we have to question why those became traditional ecological knowledge. When you think about, let's take the Aborigines, for example. There's a great book out called The Biggest Estate. It's uh, by Bill Gamage. And he talks about how the entire, the entire continent of, of Australia was managed, heavily managed, by fire for time immemorial. I mean, you're talking about a culture that has been there for at least 40 to 50, some say 60,000 years. And you're talking about one of the first large-scale megafaunal collapses is in Australia. So you see, Australia is a really interesting place because it loses all of its megafauna about 40,000 years ago. As soon as you see the, the collapse of large megafauna, you see trees growing. So now the largest animal in Australia is the kangaroo, you know, the largest one that now we have, there's, there's a lot of animals there now that would be considered megafauna, like camels and things, for example. But the animal that is there, that was born there for 40,000 years, the biggest animal there was, was the kangaroo, the red kangaroo. Why is that? How does it, what does it look like for, and then when you look at the charcoal record, you'll see that all of a sudden, 40,000 years ago, the use of fire and the frequency of fire increases to the point so say an animal a plant is adapted for natural fire regimen say the natural fire regimen is every five to ten years you'll have a sweeping fire that rolls across the landscape this plant is perfectly adapted to that type of that type of disturbance all of a sudden you get yearly or bi-yearly fires what do you think happens to a plant like that this is not a very politically correct thing to say maybe it is we have to be careful every time that we're looking on the correct time scales as to what's positive, the way Native Americans and Aborigines and First Nation cultures across the entire globe uh, interact with their landscapes. If you're looking at us and how we do it, they're a thousand times better than where we are. But there's a question is, what time scale are we looking at here? And why did they begin these large-scale land management practices in the first place because of the loss of the megafauna. As soon as you lose animals, you start to get trees. Trees, if you've ever been in a forest, there's not a lot of food around. Yes, there's, there's tree crops, but when you look at a forest versus like say a, a five-year-old or 10-year-old old field, you can walk into an old field and you'll, you'll, oh, look at this edible, look at this medicinal. There are many more species inside of a sort of an open field area versus a, you know, a forest. So to keep those things open, we had to use a very we had to use fire as one of our largest tools, which is a great tool to have. It's just when you change the natural disturbance patterns on scales that you're talking about, we look at almost all the plants that exist in in Australia now are so fire adapted, so incredibly fire adapted that if we're looking back, we'll say, well, yeah. It's just a fire country, and I believe that it's always been a fire country. But I think that the ones that we're seeing now are ones that could survive the new disturbance pattern. And that's, make, that's true of any ecosystem that you, you change the disturbance pattern, you're going to get a new species assemblage. There's, there's no way around that. So looking at traditional ecological knowledge and ecosystem modification for human survival is a good thing to do. It is, a, like I said, 1,000% better and more regenerative than the work that we do now. But I think there is a better way. I think there's a deeper way. We just got to go deeper into what did the ecosystem for millions of years, not for thousands of years, for millions of years, how did it adapt? 
How did it lose its trees? How did it deal with hydrology? How did all these things happen sans humans? Because remember, we love to call things invasive, but we hate to think of ourselves as And we are worst case scenario as an invasive. We are a top apex predator. We're also omnivorous that can eat different things. So we're highly adaptable species that can live all the way from the tropics to the Arctic. Name another invasive species that can do what we can do. And to think that we, we walk so lightly upon the earth that we made no ripples until civilization shows up 10,000 years ago or older. That's really a falsity. And I think that's not even putting into, there's a human story that we have. I think blinding in any way, shape or form, what's in front of you will then not allow us to move forward. And I think the whole point of this is, yes, we have a long history, but we also, we can have a long tomorrow. We can have a short tomorrow, depending on what we do today. And I'm using the long history to have a long tomorrow because this is something that's been, that the earth has been doing for millions of years. This is not thousands of years, not something that, that we created. We're just doing what we've always done. We're mimicking what's been happening around us to create a system that is more sustainable for ourselves. And then taking that long view and blending permaculture with the different forms of both human and conservation rewilding, are you doing that as a response to the world that we live in so that you can implement these ideas within the culture and society as it currently exists and then build towards this kind of multi-generational approach that the work that you do today will be built upon and carried on by those who will never meet? Right. And, you know, like for me, it's the story of, look, we have all this land, semi-wild land, that's full of invasives and full of non-natives that have all this potential to be food, fiber, fodder, ecosystem services like water, hydrology, carbon sequestration. We have all this stuff. We have these toolkits that the animals that have come before us and that should be here that we know work because they've worked for millions of years. We don't have to reinvent the wheel here. We just look at what was here. We can redo that thing. And when you look at what's happening in sort of rewilding circles, especially in Europe, you'll see how they use what they call taxon substitution. So in a place where they can't bring bison back in for the myriad of reasons, not enough to move in, or there's not the disposition of a bison or something wouldn't work. So in national parks and some places, some larger parks there, they use highland cattle or they use all different types of cattle, but highland cattle they use. They have a very similar mechanical disturbance than a bison. They eat the same, about the same size. They make the same type of wallows. You know, not exactly. What I've done is saying, okay, since we need these type of the ecosystem, not we, the ecosystem needs nutrients to be dispersed on large landscape scales. An elephant walks 30 miles a day. It takes two days for, for the food that it ate two days ago, 48 hours for it to digest and then come out on the other side. So you're talking about 30 to 40 miles away, you're getting these huge nutrient dumps between this movement of nutrients on scales way different than what we're thinking about here. Now we do chop and drop and we drop nutrients right where they are. And, you know, we're not moving these nutrients on scales and, and things that, we, that we're needing to do. They also only have, you know, when we think about an elephant world, an elephant-shaped world, that's what we kind of moved into after we, they went extinct. We still were trying to emulate that. That's what we came up as. We came up in these elephant-shaped worlds. You know, they move all these seeds because they have very poor digestion. So only 40% of what they eat gets digested. 
So what comes out the other end is like incredible amounts of seeds and incredible amount of fertilizer all in these huge piles. So what does that look like today? It's like, what can we do to emulate that type of thing? Or the wolf, it controls all herbal population. It feeds other carnivores with the scavengers with its carcasses. It cycles nutrients by killing animals. So I'm saying we can't use taxon substitution in a lot of places just because it's it's too small. It's a couple acres near a roadside or near, near a river or it's a park that wouldn't be good for it to bring an animal in. But you can still use the same type of disturbance. And what I call it is mechanical disturbance substitution. Instead of a taxon substitution, we're doing the same thing. Just we become these animals. And, and it takes, you know, very simple toolkits uh, at the Horn Farm Center in, in New York, where I started actually going to a place and trying to say, okay, what does this look like? There's a six acre plot there. It's a 180 acre place, the Horn Farm Center, 100 acres in New York, Pennsylvania. 68 acres is what I call spontaneous forest. In 1970, it was a field, and now it is a forest. So you're talking about a very young forest, a highly disturbed forest, and if you're looking at it through native eyes, it is a very invaded forest. Um, almost everything that we that is there is a non-native species. So I've been trying to use a six-acre plot. I'm trying to do it as scientific and as reproducible as possible. So I use no power tools, only hand tools, because I want this to become a toolkit that anybody with a backpack and a knowledge base, they don't need to have special tools. They don't need to have gasoline. They don't need to have these things. They can go out into a forested setting and become an ecological force, positive, powerful ecological force that can help sequester carbon, help move species, help with hydrology. These are all these things. And a lot of the techniques are permaculture techniques, obviously. There's swale building, there's contour building, there's check dams, there's all the things that you would think of as traditional permaculture or traditional land management is inside this toolkit. It's just that you try not to, or you do your best to try not to steer the ecosystem in one way or another. It's the idea versus bottom up versus top down. If you look at Dave Jackie, which, which he was just in, in New York teaching his great edible forest class. That's a very, what I would consider a bottom-up approach. You choose your plants, you plant them all, you dig your swales to make sure all the water is running and doing everything correctly. You maintain it, you make sure that any animal or something that, that's going in the system was designed for. Now, my approach is very much like you would like think of the wolves being reintroduced into Yellowstone. It's a very top-down approach. We create disturbances and we let the species assemble around the disturbance, which is a much easier, cheaper, <laughs> and it can create, I believe, that it creates these resilient guilds that will naturally occur, like the one that you, you've probably seen around here a thousand times, the black walnut, mulberry, black locust, grape, hackberry these five very like interesting, very edible species that assemble all the time after some sort of disturbance, early disturbance, you'll see these five species grow together and they're a perfect edible forest. The bones are always there. No one designed that guild. Maybe someone did, but we, we don't know about it. So we're, we're trying to do this. We're trying to create the disturbance. We're trying to shore up the ecosystem that's there, make sure it's not losing any soil, make sure just to shore up what's already there and then allow um, the ecosystem to using what I call mechanical disturbance or harmonic disturbance, using that type of techniques instead of the traditional land management techniques. I want the ecosystem to say, oh, I know this disturbance. 
I can do something with this. And this disturbance is done on scales and on frequencies that is much more natural than, than what a human would do. So you're looking at going in and dropping a tree to create a patch of sunlight to replicate if a tree was taken down by a storm or had died and eventually collapsed so that then you allow more sunlight onto the forest floor or to place something across a small waterway to create a pond or an ephemeral pool of some kind and then just letting the ecosystem fill in the differences? Let's think about an elephant, for example, in the landscape. Elephants are deforesters. They're not reforesters. They're deforesters. They can take down 20 to 30 trees a day. These are trees 8 to 20 inches in diameter. They just push them down. So what's the difference between an elephant taking down a tree and a human taking down a tree? You probably just realized it. When you see a blown down tree, you get this very specific thing that happens. You get this divot where the tree was, and then you get this hump that happens. When you cut down a tree, you don't get that. You get a small stump that comes out of the ground and that's it. But when you push down a tree, you get this little divot. Now think about that on a large scale. You get all these, what would be almost like these little swales that just keep filling with water, filling with, if you've ever seen, I have a bunch of pictures, they fill with leaves as the winter, as the winter comes. They become these wet, damp compost bins that fill in to themselves. So just changing, cutting down a tree versus pushing down a tree, just doing that. So say elephants push down trees. Okay, let's push down a tree and see what happens. Now it looks different. It acts different. It does an ecosystem service that just chopping down the tree doesn't do. Say, for example, a beaver. They're using live, you know, actual beaver populations in California to try and help with the hydrology of the landscape. We can do the same thing in any of our waterways. By us becoming the beaver, we can control where we put the beaver dam. Beaver dams are pretty simple. They're not easy to build, but they're made out of natural materials, and they're, they're made out of the materials that are there. And we can do the same type of beaver dam that a beaver would do, but we get to control where we do it. That's one of the problems with reintroducing beaver anywhere, is that they'll put it wherever they want it to go. And whatever causes them to put it there, which then causes them to come in contact with humans that don't want them there. But what if we can do that? We now get all the benefits of the beaver dam. We get flooded forests. We get hydric soils. We get hundreds of different species that interact with, the, with it. You get you know, higher carbon sequestration in, in marshlands than in any sort of a dry upland forest cannot you know, store as much carbon as hydric soils. So we get all the benefits of a beaver by just emulating the beaver. We get all the ecosystem services of the beaver by just emulating that. The wolf, for example, the wolf takes lots of animals. It controls herbivore populations by fear. Just knowing a, a wolf is in the area allows for the, if you, we've, we've all seen deer just standing by the side of the road, eating nonchalantly, just sort of, they look very much like cattle. In a wolf world, that doesn't happen. They browse quicker. They take faster bites. They move more. They end up spreading nutrients farther in the landscape. So by creating this sphere in the ecosystem, which is much more natural than having these like whole parts of, the, uh, of North America, which have no large predators, you have this place that, is, while it might be great for humans to lay out in the forest on their hammock and not worry about the bear or the wolf, 
the ecosystem struggles because of that. So trying to bring back as many ideas of laying blood and uh, doing the best that you can with like trying to create that ecology of fear in the place where you're trying to then control the herbivore population, which then controls what they browse on, how often they browse on it. So instead of having to control the deer population by shooting it or creating fences, or we create a much more natural approach to dealing with what in permaculture would be considered a vector, an uncontrolled outside force. We control that by using a natural remedy for that, which is a wolf. The image of this is emerging now as you walk me through that, because I wasn't thinking of the four species that you had outlined between the beaver, the wolf, the elephant, and the wild humans. I was just thinking of the different types of activities that could occur, not necessarily exactly how they would happen. I was still thinking from a bottom-up kind of perspective or maybe a middle-out. Yeah, I'm thinking of this idea of disturbance designing is what I call it. We're just designing disturbances. We're designing their frequency. We're designing their size. And we're designing that not based off of what we do. It's what's the animal that's supposed to be there. So we say, all right, this has a bunch of invasive species that are here. We need to take them down. How many are we going to take down? How are we going to take them down? Humans would say, let's just cut them down. Let's cut them down. Let's get, them, let's get rid of them. Wait a minute. What would the elephant do? You know, what would an elephant do if it was here? It would push them down. Okay, so if we push them down, if we push them down, you know, horizontal to on contour, we can now push it down, create this little well that becomes this compost bin. So then we can take some of the ideas of permaculture and take it for the elephant. So we say, yes, we're going to push it down. Or if we can't push it down because it's too large, we'll cut it down. We'll dig that small divot on the other side of there. So it becomes the same thing as a push down. But instead of just dropping it wherever it wants to go, we're going to put it on contour. So then you can catch any sediment, any water flowing down the, the hill. We can then control these small aspects of it. But once we do that, we don't say, okay, we want to put the trees in this exact spacing and this exact thing. We say, you had Zach on, which is Nomad Seed Project. If there's not a seed bed to be had, then we're going to have to introduce species. And ecosystem engineers are not just animals. They're plants, too. Plants that have very large ecosystem roles, like the oak tree, for example, or the chestnut tree, are considered ecosystem engineers. They actually make such an impact by so many species that you almost have to treat them like you, they're not as a regular tree, that not all trees are created equal as far as the impact they have on the amount of species that they do. Doug Tallamy's book will show you all these different species with insects, but I'm really worried about the things that I can emulate, I can mimic. So oak trees, chestnuts, hazelnuts, and guess what? They are all have high edibility for humans as well. So reintro what the thing that wild human can do. We can move plants around. That's our beauty. Of, that's our difference. That's what makes us very unique in the animal kingdom because we can move plants. So finding these species, so everything that we introduce, they have to be ecosystem engineers themselves. So instead of a, a, a maple, we'll plant something that has a high edibility for humans which just so happened to be humans and animals at the same time. We plant an oak tree instead of a, a, a maple tree, which might be cheaper to get the maple and they might be grow faster, but long-term repercussions of creating a highly variable ecosystem that can then withstand a higher carrying capacity would be planting ecosystem engineers, planting plants who have high value 
to, to the wild spaces. And I only plant natives. Why? Because I can't make a mistake. I like a lot of invasives, quote unquote, air quote, invasive species. I think they, they have potential to do a lot of things. But what I'm doing in my forest is I'm converting the invasives into habitat. I take the Atlantis down, for example. I take the Atlantis down. I use it. So if I need to build a beaver dam, why would I take down the birch tree and the black walnut, which have their one, their native, two, they're doing ecosystem service. They have a, a relationship with the fungal, the mycorrhizal. Let's not take them down. We have this problem, privet, multiflora, Japanese bittersweet. Let's not use them, see them as a problem. It's part of our solution there. We have all this sort of wood and cellulose and everything that we need. We can convert all the invasives into habitat. So I use them for check dams. I use them for, I make brushwood bundles so I can shore up for sediment. And I'm using 100% invasives for that. And, you know, some native purists will say, you got to get rid of them. Sure. I think you have to manage them. I don't think you can get rid of them. You can't. They're here to stay. Manage them by dealing with the vectors that are causing them. They're only there because of some type of unnatural disturbance in the first place. So by shoring the, up the ecosystem that exists, that's my first, the first step of, of intervening in a wild space for me is shore up the ecosystem that's already there. And what that will do, and it's like identify and assess the vulnerable areas and species and nutrients in the existing ecosystem. So its limitations is topography. You know that thing. And then only after you, you identify, you fortify. You fortify the health and adaptability, right? You design specific things and you begin to implement for, say, you have an erosion channel. That's going to be cause a problem. So I, why would I not? That's the first thing I need to do. I need to shore that up. So I need to create check dams and fill that in, and, you know, drop some trees in there and do what I need to do to deal with that sort of vector point that's losing energy out of the system. Once the system becomes stable or semi-stable in a stable state, then we begin the bolstering process. You bolster the ecosystem by implementing sort of a mechanical disturbance or what I call harmonic disturbance. If you think about when something is in harmony, even a, even a sound of a voice is in harmony. When there are multiple people singing at one time, when there's a harmony, it's a, there's a beauty to it. There's an ease to it. So that I think, I think that's the idea of like the correct disturbance at the correct frequency and size then creates this harmony with the ecosystems. And then through that harmonic disturbance, you allow the ecosystem to transform itself into whatever novel state that we are, that we might not even know. I think a lot of the problems that we have when you're thinking about conservation or sort of conservation projects is we need to control everything that's going in. If you, I think you've spoken to Dow Ryan about, you know, how they naturally, you know, the beyond the war on invasive species, what is, what is a best practice is pretty brutal and it's pretty expensive. So if, if we have a world that, we, that needs to be, I think the, the work of our time is restoring ecosystems and ecosystem function to fight to what we have done. So in order to do that, we can't all wait for grants. There's no time. The old way needs to die for the new world to come in. And the only way to do that is by making each individual human being giving them a toolkit that they can, one, afford, two, understand, and three, can almost do no harm. They're choosing native species instead of invasives. They're taking the invasives because they have to, to bolster the ecosystem and fortify it. They have to do, pos you almost have to do positive things by 
looking at what the the ecosystem is needing instead of what you're needing from the ecosystem. So it's it's the first ethic, earth care. And in this type of designing, it stays there. And if you can catch a yield, which you always will, because think about the, the ecosystem that you create, the ecosystem that is healthier, it cleans your water better. It has a higher carrying capacity, which means you can hunt more if, if you're into that. Or you, you can just, you can put rare and endangered species in a much more, in a fortified environment. They would stay there. There's so many positives to it. You almost can't do wrong. And with the Horn Farm Center, what we're doing is, you know, I want to create a physical space that you can come in and say, so this is what mechanical disturbance can do. So I'm using a six acre plot now. There's another six acre plot that we're leaving as is. And I want to show mechanical disturbance can be this incredibly positive, large scale six. And then I'll move into the 60 acres that, that are there and even try and get the forest larger eventually. It all goes to plan. You know, get this ecosystem so it functions at such a high carrying capacity, stores so much carbon and does the best, you know, creating a very positive ecosystem influence. All of that seems pretty straightforward in some ways for me kind of sitting in this place as both a permaculture designer and someone who has formal training in resource management as it deals with like the landscape and natural resources. And it's interesting because you're providing a lot of the tools and services that are talked about within the natural resource management world about the you know the best practices and the things that we should do but that when you look at what is available monetarily through grants and other practices they just can't be implemented you know it's real easy to get some money for some herbicide to go spray your garlic mustard and the different organizations that are willing to give you those products in order to do it and you know come train your staff on how to use their new sprayer but when it comes to training volunteers in order to recognize these plants and go in and do mechanical removal or ongoing education of visitors so that they don't you know, walk through certain areas because of trying to restore the landscape that's there, that when you look at the resources that are required among your staff between you know, signage, educational materials, and everything else, a lot of times those what we might think of as traditional practices of spraying, they just seem so much easier. But when you do that, all they do is address the problem. And one of the like ongoing conversations in resource management is the distinction between a problem and an issue. And a problem is something, you know, like garlic mustard would be a problem. But the issue with it is that we have a plant that has been introduced to disturbed areas that it can outcompete some of the other plants that are there because of the niches that it fills. And then the way that we can resolve the problem is to spray. The way that we can resolve the issue is through things like, again, mechanical removal of that garlic mustard, and then coming back through and restoring those woodlands or that ecosystem so that niche no longer exists for that kind of a plant or other problem. I've spoken a lot about what we're actually doing for the landscape. While the term rewilding has its merit, it's well known. I think it has a lot of pitfalls and downfalls just because of what it's been used for, who's used it, how it's been used. The idea of what is wild in, in the first place becomes this you know, really slippery slope. But when you're in the forest and you make a positive impact and you're part of the sort of the evolution of the next forest that is coming up, you get a benefit as well. 
because like I said, this was this is sort of the synthesis between conservation rewilding and human rewilding. So I haven't spoken at all about what what does the human get out of this? You know, uh, Richard Louv's book on the idea that we don't spend enough time in the forest, and you know, we all struggle without a you know intact ecosystems. So becoming this this ecological force, you, you're not just helping the ecosystem, you're helping yourself. It's physically demanding. You now have a, there's a, there's a real purpose in a life. Humans need to move into these forested settings almost in mass, at least for the next hundred years. We need to value the idea of ecosystem regeneration and human rewilding as a culture. And if we do that, we can allow people like Zach, for example, with his nomadic seed, he barely makes any money. You know, he, he does it. It's a, it's a project that he loves and he understands and it's a passion. And me, I don't, I don't make a lot of money either, but I know how important. And I know, I mean, have you ever, have you ever heard the, the, of the jungle man of India? He planted a thousand acres. Yeah. Planted a thousand acre uh, on his own oh, over 20 plus years. This is the type of work that I think if we're thinking about ourselves as permaculturalists, if we're thinking about ourselves as worried about climate change, and even if you never step foot in a forest, you never step foot in a wild space, and you never plan to, you're just as beholden to the services that the ecosystem provides for you in the term of fresh air, fresh water, all sort of the ecosystem services that a wild ecosystem provides, you're still beholden to that. There's still no technology, and I don't know if there ever will be a technology that can replace what an intact ecosystem can do. That's not to say anything about biodiversity, that the loss of it is it's beyond criminal, the idea of, 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 a, of something that took 10 million years to turn into the animal that we see today and to let it go extinct is just unbelievable. But we all know the climate that we live in. We all know the, the visceral sort of corporatocracy that we live in today. Are we really waiting on our roofs, like the people in Katrina, are we waiting for a government that is not showing up? That will never show up. No one is showing up here. The party is here. Like the work that's being done is always and always has been done by your neighbor. And, you know, I think the falsity is that we're always waiting for some grant to come. So we, so we just got to wait for the money to come in. And we have to, I think we have to prop ourselves up. Like we do in any catastrophe, you'll see the best in humanity. You see your neighbor come out with his boat and save the person that they might not even like each other, but it's a human being. This is the work of our time. The work of our time is, is to mitigate climate change in any way, shape, and form that you can possibly do. But there's no avenue that's going ha- that, that exists right now that is going to pay for this. So if you like to breathe, if you like to drink water, you need to prop up anyone or anything any service that is holding the line for wild spaces and wild things. Because like I said, even if you never, ever, ever, if you live in New York city or you live in London or you live anywhere where you don't even care about a wild space, you still need it. There's no way around that. You still need it. So I think we need to figure out how we're going to allow this work to be done in mass on scale. And we're going to need to do it ourselves. We're going to need to bypass like you're doing right now with Patreon. We need to bypass the traditional ideas of how we're going to get this, this work done. And we need to do it ourselves. If we care about it, then we need to donate to your page. 
donate to the Horn Farm Center so so the work can be done and a, a toolkit that can be reproduced and a book that can come out or whatever. I want to have trainings and I want to have the whole thing. But how do I do it? If I have a five-year-old, I have to be able to have my five-year-old eat in the world that we live in. So there has to be a way to prop up Zach and his, his work so he can go farther and he can collect more. This is the, I really do believe, not just because I'm doing it. I do it because I think it's the work of our, of our generation is we, we, we just so happen to be living at this very critical moment where either we're going to make or break the entire sort of natural system that we have been, we relied on for a billion, you know, for all life has relied on for billions of years. And I think for me, that's almost like a very, it gives me energy. It doesn't take away, it gives me energy to go, I have a purpose and I have a toolkit that can help. And that was Wilson Alvarez. To find out more about him and his work as a permaculture practitioner and rewilder, there are links in the show notes to our earlier interviews. You'll also find links to the Horn Farm Center, including the page to donate to the farm and this project, in addition to many of the books, people, and other resources mentioned. If you'd like to hear more from Wilson, there's some of our conversation that didn't make it into this interview that I'm releasing exclusively for Patreon supporters. Also for Patreon supporters, I have two active giveaways at the moment. One, which closes on January 11th, is for a copy of Douglas Barnes' The Permaculture Earthworks Handbook. The other is for Jerome Osentowski's The Forest Garden Greenhouse, which closes on January 18th. If you'd like to hear the rest of that conversation with Wilson, or enter those giveaways, you'll find a link to each in the show notes, or you can find out more by visiting patreon.com slash permaculturepodcast. I'd also like to say that for anyone in the Mid-Atlantic, the Horn Farm Center is an incredible resource for anyone interested in agriculture, permaculture, and rewilding. John Darby, who appeared in the first group discussion of the podcast many years ago, is the education director there and focuses on offering classes in these areas, often with Wilson as a lead instructor. Check out the website and see if there's anything that might be of interest to you. Whenever I have a conversation with Wilson, it always bolsters my hope that we can achieve a number of our ecological, landscape, and management goals within a single human lifetime. That as much as I take a multi-generational approach, he always provides such practical, replicable advice on how to tackle the hard issues facing us that I think that we can create a ton of change with the time that each and every one of us has available to us. Part of that, as I was mentioning there towards the end, from my own experiences in resource management, this project by Wilson really helps to tackle many of the difficult tasks of working on the edge to manage the landscape. And what he's developed can do that with very simple tools. Though there are some ethical and legal issues we'll probably need to discuss before taking these practices to a landscape scale, you can look at these four ecosystem engineers that Wilson shared with us today, the beaver, wolf, elephant, and wild human, and look for similar prehistoric influencers in your area and how they impacted the land, and then begin applying the mechanical disturbances that they did now where you are. If you lived in a place that was once an elephant-dominated landscape, to begin pushing over trees. If you have an area with beavers, to begin creating some dams. We can start right on a piece of land that we're currently working with or with others around us as we reach out into our community and find the others who are engaged in this kind of work to rebuild our waterways and the buffers between those spaces in zone four and those that are more heavily managed 
in Zone 0, 1, 2, and 3. If after hearing this interview, you start digging into the place where you live and the ecosystem engineers that existed there or that may still exist, I'd love to hear what you find, especially what those creatures are and what kind of disturbances they created. As always, you can get in touch with me by phone, 717-827-6266, send me an email, show at thepermaculturepodcast.com, or drop something into the post, The Permaculture Podcast, P.O. Box 16, Dauphin, Pennsylvania, 17018. From here, the next interview, out in about 10 days, will be my conversation with Michael Judd about natural burials. Until then, spend each day creating the world that you want to live in by taking care of Earth, yourself, and your community.